All right, God damn it! Welcome to all you accursed. It's another episode of Curse of Politics, Canada's favorite political podcast. <laughs> I don't have any data to back that up. I just feel that way about the podcast. I feel it because of comments on Apple Podcasts like this from BAS 1809. I love the chemistry between Jenny Byrne, Scott Reed, and David Hurley. Some of the last pundits who can fight hard and then head off arm in arm to enjoy life in a few drinks. Of course, that's balanced by this one from Slow Listened. What's with the fast talking? Sounds like everyone drank too much coffee and I can't even understand half of what's being discussed. So whether you love us or hate us, or whether it's booze or coffee, Jenny, Scott, and I are being outed for always drinking, which is 100% accurate. All right, here's this week's show. We're going to do our own brief election postmortem to assist the Conservative caucus with theirs later this week at their retreat. We'll talk truckers, grocery shelves, and inflation. Why are the Liberals so seemingly dismissive, and why are the Conservatives aligning themselves with unvaccinated truckers? Our cursed clipping this week is Susan Delacourt's piece on governing via talking points, slogans, and hashtags. And finally, we'll do our Hey Yous for the week. Stick around for that. Gordon Pinsent, Jenny, Scott, how are you? Hey, good, David. How are you doing? You know, Jenny, I'm fucking awesome. I'm in a good mood. Wow. I just woke up. I'm in a good mood. And I don't care. Nothing's going to break it. The Canadians can lose 8-2 to two to Minnesota with eight <laughs> different people scoring against Paul, them. And Paul it doesn't Primo. affect my mood. The Buffalo Bills can lose in way in a way that makes Saskatchewan Rough Rider fans go, man, that's a heartbreaker. And that still doesn't affect me. People can attack my perfectly legitimate and sound point of view about meatloaf. And it's still not even going to affect my day. I'm in a good mood. I'm so excited, I just can't hide it. Wow. <laughs> well, I'm wow. in a different place. You two. I, thank God I'm here. Although I'd be floating around in a cloud of joy no 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 i barely made it to the podcast today like driving around the streets of toronto the sort of death race that it is where you're trying to navigate the side street trying to get ben to school this morning i barely made it here in times just it's it's insane how bad people drive and snow is everywhere and people can't move and then they don't get over and all this and it's just it's like a time issue sitting to me like when i was a kid my dad would drive in his big black Dodge and there'd be like a 26 or a rye half drink underneath the front seat. And he would just, he'd have the window down the whole time, just his head out the window so he could scream it without, without break, just screaming, cocksucking sons of bitches, move over, move over. And it's, it's all I, it's all I think about the whole time I'm driving now is I feel like I'm in my dad's car in 1977. So I hate driving in the city. Well, David, I can't believe you don't like meatloaf. Like, have you have you not oh, listened to some of some of the best on. lyrics? Like, some of the best lyrics in uh, um, you know music history. Jenny, on a hot summer's night, would you offer your throat to the wolf for the red roses? <laughs> yes, I bet yes. you say that to all the boys. <laughs> oh, come on! Would he offer you his hunger? <laughs> How do you not like that, David? I dare anybody to sit down right now and listen to Bad Out of Hell, which is obviously his best album from start to finish. It's fantastic. It is I fantastic. did that all weekend long. I, I it's did. Fucking, I did. It's unlistenable. My my sister and I do a mean paradise by the dashboard light. Like, and, and my sister, she is much more outgoing uh, than I am. Like she, she'll get into it as the guy, like she'll like, like at the end when he's like, 
I can't take it any longer. Um, I, she'll like get on her knees. Like she's it's like, we've, we've got it. We've got a rhythm down. Jim I don't, Stein. I don't deny the paradise by the dashboard light is a iconic song. And I can personally sing most of the lyrics against my will, but <laughs> one novelty song does not a career make. Bad out of hell is great. <laughs> Two out of three ain't bad. Do you have no beating heart within your chest, man? I mean, my God. Baby, we can cry all night. We can talk all night. But that ain't getting us nowhere. David, you've never had a night like that? <laughs> because I don't love you. That's not a love song. A love song doesn't have I don't love you. That's what's no, so great. That's what's so great about all those songs. None of them are about love. All of them are actually the opposite. It's deep shit. It's Jim Steinman taking us operatically deep into the mind of a 16-year-old boy, into the front trousers of a 16-year-old boy. Come on. That's good stuff. Yeah, so I remember the Levi's at Don't Can't You See My You're Levi's bursting at the scene. Anyways, this is, we should get feedback from the listeners. This, this is what happens when the Montreal Canadiens, like there is nothing, yeah. nothing like in three minutes we can talk about. Hey, did you see that thing behind me, by the way? Just FYI. That is the official program for the tribute to Pierre Elliott Trudeau at the 1984 Liberal mm. Convention. T tell the Paul Anka story. Come on. Well, fucking Paul Anka. They had it. The tribute was so, <laughs> the tribute was so terrible. So terrible. Um, they had brought back Rich Little <laughs> to do impressions. Oh, hello, Rochester. <laughs> Rich Little had not been in Canada for so long. This is 1984. I was 22. He was doing Pearson and Diefenbaker impersonations because he didn't know any more modern Canadians than that. <laughs> Nobody knew what the fuck he was talking the, about. Killer LaFontaine. <laughs> and, then, and then they bring on Paul Anka, who'd rewritten the words to My Way. And the whole thing was a travesty <clears throat> from start to finish, this song. And I remember all the words. Now, having only heard it once, it was so shocking. I still remember all the words. But the closer was this. The closer was this. Paul Anka says, no matter what, you must agree. Canada gave you him and it gave you me. So to one and all, from Pierre and Paul, we did it our way. Beautiful. It's beautiful. <laughs> It's like he had governed the country for 16 years also. <laughs> uh, Paul Anka. Uh. <laughs> what could be schmaltzier oh, than my way with personalized lyrics? Just like, like just not enough cheese in the world. <laughs> so we have a lot to cover today. Maybe we should get to it. All right. Let's start with truckers and supply chains. Ever since the government, in a somewhat confusing fashion, announced that cross-border truck drivers would have to be vaccinated, this has been a firestorm. There's a trucker's convoy going to Ottawa, encouraged by some premiers. There's Twitter fights over what's on store shelves. There's a lot I don't understand about this, you two. First of all, I don't understand if the same law is in place in the United States. I don't know why this whole question isn't moot here in Canada. The second thing is, I don't understand why we're trying to control Omicron at the border. If the whole our whole country is full of it, why do we care whether a truck driver has it when he or she crosses the border? So I don't understand any of that. But what I really don't understand are the main two parties on this question. 
The liberals are denying supply chain issues when it's plainly obvious to everybody that they exist. And the conservatives are allying themselves with a very marginal movement of unvaccinated truckers. And I say the conservatives loosely because while it's clear that many MPs support the truckers, O'Toole wouldn't say yes or no yesterday when asked repeatedly. So, what the fuck's going on here? You explain to me. What is going on? Do you want to go first, Danny? Scott, or go do you ahead. want me to? Well, Jimmy, I think this is this is this is more about. I think that probably this uh, uh, this convoy or this movement started uh, as as kind of the truck drivers that were not vaccinated, which which is apparently ten percent of of truckers um, uh, in terms of of this. But there were truckers on on radio yesterday that I was listening to on talk radio that were like, "I'm vaccinated." This has actually now become more because of the liberals' response, kind of their obtuse response in terms of supply chain issues and inflation and the high cost of. Uh, and the increased high cost of living, this guy was like, listen, uh, between the carbon tax and the next carbon tax uh, coming up, between the increased uh, uh, price of gas generally and uh, the green, green fuel standards, uh, which is we're the only country in the world to have it, he goes, it is very hard for me to make a living. And so I think that this has become... Uh, David, more than this is this is not this is not a the liberals would like to make this a, 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 an issue about whether truck drivers are, are vaccinated or not. But there is no way that there's, you know, a convoy that's 70 kilometers long. Um, it takes an hour. People that are on the roads, thousands of people are coming out and cheering these people on. This movement has raised four point two million dollars in the last week um, through GoFundMe. The, put that in perspective. The Liberal Party's fundraising numbers going into uh, Q2 fundraising numbers. So going into essentially an election and uh, in, into an election, we're only three point two million dollars. Um, and so I think that this has become and this will be we'll see how the conservatives handle it. But this is not an issue about about vaccinations. It, it like this is not an issue about vaccinations. This is now becoming an issue about the fact that this federal government is making decisions that are causing people's standard of living to go down. It'll, it's making them uncomfortable. It's 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 raising the price of everything. It's it's making things more expensive, and it's also crippling future generations in terms of uh, uh, in terms of the policies they're they're making. There's just almost no chance that anyone uh, that doesn't own a house now you know, entry level house, like when our parents were, you know, young, you got married, you bought a house and you went on with like, people can't afford to do that now with the, with the real, with the housing market. And so that's, that's what I think this ultimately is. If I were the liberals, I would be, I would stop being so flippant about, uh, about what this issue is. I, um, well, um, we're going to disagree about most of this. We're going to agree uh, about the fact that the liberals have, I think, been too sanguine on this issue of cost of living, too sanguine on the issue of uh, shelves and supply chains. They've not, um, I don't think they've filled enough of the vacuum by saying, here's Supply the chain, Scott, if I could just stop you for yeah. a second. Supply chain has entered the popular lexicon as yeah. a phrase. I hear it everywhere, you, right? Yeah, Everybody you it's, talk to is talking about supply chains and stores, whatever. So right. Yeah. So I think when you've got something that that's you know so so we're all in agreement that I think that the government needs to be uh, taking greater control of this narrative, talking about what that means, what that problem is, trying to define that problem. That's the first step in political communication. Trying to actually say this is what the challenge is. You can take me on on that, but this is what the challenge is. Therefore, this is how we're approaching it. This is the plan. This is what we're doing. We don't hear any of this. There's a lot of uh, kind of dismissive kind of. Online bullshit stuff happening, and I think that we're probably all in agreement there. 
it's br- part of a broader piece about the degree of priority that this government pays to economic um, issues in total and how much it tries to put it at the center of its agenda. But we are going to disagree strenuously about this issue. It is the conservatives, in my estimation, who have made this about vaccinations, and they've done it in the last 48 hours, and it's a dreadful mistake, and it's highly indicative of fun- fundamental problems with the Conservative Party and the Conservative movement right now. And I say the Conservatives have made it about vaccinations because your buddy Pierre Polyev is saying things like, let our truckers what, what, restore freedom for all. Let them drive and restore freedom for all. Melissa Lansman putting out stuff. My good friend, your good friend, putting out stuff about drop the mandate. They're making it about vaccinations. They're making it about freedom. It's a freedom rally and it's freedom from being vaccinated. Freedom from taking a miracle cure. Freedom from not infecting people. Freedom from not being beneath the ground in a pine box. It's bullshit. And this question of, then you get O'Toole, who won't even answer the question as to what his position is on it. He's so nutlessly shit shit-faced scared of a minority opinion, a minority opinion even within his own party, much less the population. 66% of people say that we should be imposing harsher restrictions on the unvaccinated. I'm not necessarily in that camp, but that tells you where people are at. 85% of Canadians have had at least one dose. There is not a lot of tolerance. Both sides of the border require this rule. It is not an issue that you are on the majority of, of Canadians with. And so we can have an argument with supply chain, but that's not what the Conservatives are making this about. They're making this no, about wait. freedom. They're making this about vaccination. They're making it's- this about drop the mandate. They're making this about let people do what they want to do, particularly if that means not getting vaccinated. You can't have it both ways. The Conservative well, Party so sucks I- and blows on this. It's why they lost the last election, and it's going to cripple them going forward. Uh, no, this is this is if you if you see any of the commentary, this is on this is mostly on supply chain stuff. And and as for vaccine mandates, I actually don't support vaccine mandates as someone that's been fully uh, that's been fully vaccinated. Look at in Ontario. So you have a truck driver who who you have a truck driver who sits by himself all day um, uh, driving across the province. But your kid can go is probably is at, at school with teachers that aren't vaccinated. Hey, we can get hard on Jenny, that. Help if we want. This. Jenny, help me with this. If the states requires it. Why isn't our thing moot? Like, who cares? Like, you, if you are supposed to be crossing the border, you can't come into Canada without a vaccination. If we let you do that, you wouldn't be able to go back into the States without a vaccination. So why, why, is, why are people outraged at the Canadian government about this? Well, I think that I think that this started with them with with truck drivers uh, call, with truckers calling on the Canadian government to actually talk to the Americans, um, uh, talk to the Americans about this. That's what I mean, David. Okay. This is not. This is. This is why this issue has been. This is why this issue is. Is. Uh, uh, this is why this issue is is much larger than uh, than what uh, the media are trying to make it, and what what um, uh, the uh, liberal government is. Then is, why uh, are conservative MPs going online and talking about freedom and mandates and vaccinations? Who the hell do you think is making it about this? Don't say it's the media. Don't say it's the world. The conservatives are putting this in this kind of. I heard Andrew Scheer was out hugging the hugging and the exactly. The- yeah, but thousands, people. but David, David, thousands of people were out. Thousands of people were out. Like this is, this yeah, is no, thousands no. of people were out in Saskatchewan in extremely cold temperature to wave at these guys. Like and this don't, is. It, don't make the mistake of thinking that that's necessarily representative of majority opinion. It isn't majority opinion in the country. It's not majority opinion even within the conservative movement. Hey, Ignatiev had big crowds. Ignatiev had big crowds in 2011. But that's what I'm saying to you, Scott, is that you can that that this has become an organic issue about the fact of what I said, that this federal liberal government continues to make 
tone deaf policies uh, so they can uh, so they can they can do the Davos and cop circuit and seem really cool and and fun. And all it's doing is is causing uh, all it's doing is causing extreme hardship uh, for a lot of people in this country. Uh, actually, at some point, okay, in wait your a second. Regardless you have to say, of this our is a rule or whether or not they're. Go ahead, Scott. Go ahead. Well, at some point, you're in government. You say it's a rule or it isn't. The United States has a rule. We have the rule. It's going to apply to everybody. Should we have an exemption? You make a decision. You say no. Then it's like, but the conservative party is pandering to the worst impulses, pretending that this, people who are vaccinated, members of parliament who are vaccinated, pretending that the problem here is that we're not letting a small minority of people, the 15% of people who still haven't even gotten one dose, we can't, we're, we're not going to let them do whatever the hell they please. Okay, it's not let's about talk freedom, about the freedom Scott, rally. Then let's talk a break. Fucking the- bullshit. Last week, Hurley Burleyites, I promised you a riveting story about megahertz, which is the way electromagnetic spectrum is measured. And I know what you're thinking. It's beyond my meager talents to make a thing like megahertz compelling. Well, I take that as a challenge, so listen closely. It's part of a larger story from our presenting sponsor, TELUS, on how we get high-speed 5G wireless connectivity right across the whole of Canada, not just big cities, but all rural, remote, and Indigenous communities. Not just now, but for a generation. This is Chapter 2, the 100 megahertz, mega-critical, mega-decision. 100 megahertz is no arbitrary measure. It's the international standard for 5G mobile and wireless broadband, set by no lesser a body than the UN's International Telecommunications Union. Countries all over the world use that standard as they compete fiercely in the innovation economy. Countries that Canada can't afford to fall behind. 100 megahertz of mid-band spectrum would also allow carriers like TELUS to deliver the maximum benefits of 5G to their customers. It's so much faster, with the ability to carry tons of data over really long distances. But here's where it gets even more important. With caps at 100 megahertz, four different carriers will have enough of that spectrum to launch their 5G networks equally in every market, which means they'll have to compete aggressively. So let's recap. 100 megahertz caps means fierce competition, fair prices, Canada keeps up with the rest of the world. I think that's pretty compelling stuff. As I speak these words, the feds are having public consultations on the best way to auction this 5G spectrum to carriers. They want optimal service for all Canadians. TELUS wants that too. 100 megahertz caps just happens to be the key to getting there. We'll talk more about it next week. But in the meantime, you can have your say right now by going to telus.com slash get 5G right. Scott, can you answer my other question? Why do we care? Why do we care whether a trucker has COVID, has Omicron? Why do we care? That, that's an interesting question, but that's not the same thing as, so that's vaccine mandates. Then the question is, how are we going to, like, do we say it's so prevalent all across North America that, you know, these kinds of border restrictions don't make sense? But if you're going to do that, don't do it as an exemption for one small category of persons, then say, but you know what, that's the way it's got to roll overall. And that's kind of what we're starting to do in Ontario, if you want to be honest. Kids can go to school, right? Bar and restaurants are going to open. It's not because we're trying to stop the transmission anymore. We've given up on even measuring the transmission. But, but Scott, I think so. Here is here would be my here is what I would say uh, to the liberals. It, it, they have to be intellectually honest. How about the the 
thousands of public servants that work for them, that are paid for by the government, that are exempt from having to be vaccinated for their jobs. If we're going to talk about intellectual honesty, for the love of Christ, we have to talk about members of parliament in the Conservative Party. No, 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 answer my question. Answer my question. Answer no, no, my no. question. Justin Trudeau, Justin Trudeau talks about vaccine mandates. There mandate, is a rule from Homeland Security in the United Wait, States. You guys, there is you a guys rule can I ask a different CBSA. question? I'd, I'd like to ask a different question. What do we make of O'Toole yesterday? Because we're talking about the conservatives as if they're a monolithic thing here. And yes, there have been very prominent members of parliament that have taken on this issue aggressively, but O'Toole refused to yesterday. What do we make of that? Typical. Guy's too scared to say what he thinks, which I don't know, does what he think. I presume that what he thinks is that, you know, whenever he can, he tries to say, look, I want to get people vaccinated. Sounds like he's kind of secretly for vaccine mandates, but doesn't want to say it for fear that they will unleash even greater forces against him in his own caucus. He's got members of parliament who aren't asking permission. They're moving ahead of where he is on it. So he can't afford to look like he's in contradiction to them. Otherwise, he'd have to impose discipline. And he's too scared to impose discipline. He doesn't have the capacity or the strength to impose discipline. So he just stands in front of the microphone and swings around like a weather vane and looks weak, which is only going to get him further pushed down the road. Yeah, I think the problem yesterday is he went out with no message. So, uh, like, I think it was Travis Danraj from CBC that asked in the middle of the press conference, he's like, I'm a little bit confused here um, because you called a press conference to talk about this and now you won't answer any questions. Like, that was how his kind of preamble to his his question. And so this this is like, I don't know what's going through their head in a morning meeting where they're like, OK, well, let's. Let's send the boss out to do a presser on this huge, this, this big issue. Okay, what is he going to say? Hmm. Stand hmm. for something. And so, so, but why go out? So if you're not, if you're actually not going to give an answer one way or another, just don't go out. Like there was no need for him to, um, to hit for him to go out. And it's yesterday's, it's funny, yesterday's presser really, um, uh, set off a lot of people that I talked to internally and caucus, like every day there's a drip of the caucus supporters that were like, after, after the, after the election, we're kind of like, we don't want another leadership race. Let's just give them the benefit of the doubt. This is all just very messy. And every day that he does something like, like yesterday, it drives more and more people into the category um, that they want to lead. They, they either want him gone or they want a leadership review and they want a leadership review um, like now, as opposed to uh, one in um, at the convention, which isn't scheduled for a year and a half. There was, we saw the first riding association in Alberta foothills uh, that came out with a motion calling for, uh, you know, asking national council uh, for an immediate uh, to call a leadership review uh, question uh, by uh, June uh, 13th, I think it is of, of this year. And so, so every time he does something inconsistent, um, uh, he, 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 he is doing more and more harm to himself internally. Well, for the sake of curse of politics, Bring on a review. Come on. Oh, give us yes. a review. Please give us a review. Well, nice, big, long, stretched out, ugly process. And multiple opportunities for people to stick a butter knife in. It's great. No, but this is, but this is, so, but this is the, so this is, if we're going to like segue into like the, the conservative stuff, I think the only way Aaron survives kind of past the next, kind of past the next very short term is if he actually concedes and calls for a leadership review. Right. Yeah, I think that's right. He's got to clear the air. I think other. I think. Point. I think otherwise, it'll. This the next catalyst this week is going to be this election report, the James Cummings report, and they're really seeming to play it up. And they played it up, if you remember, back in the fall when they called it like we're really taking this serious. We're 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 really. Um, this is going to be good work. I've heard from I've heard from people that 
half the interviews were done by, you know, assistants that are being paid for by the party um, and not James himself. I don't know if there's any um, if there's any truth to that, but he's going into a caucus retreat with a caucus who is growing, who's who's be growing, becoming growing more hostile towards him. And they've already publicly said they're not going to release anything. If if they basically stand up and say, oh, well, uh, the leaders tour sucked here and, you know, the ground game wasn't as good here and nothing else to see. I think that could be the proverbial straw that breaks the camel's back. Hey, Jenny, can I ask a question? You mentioned earlier, you're like, if he doesn't call the question, then, you know, he's, he's, he's euchred. What just like, so that means... Like, in your opinion, does that mean, like, if he doesn't call the question himself by taking control of it, then then what? At, at, at some point in the next two, three months, caucus just gets fed up they, and they just have a meeting and they say, listen, dude, here's your hat. Fuck off. Well, I think, that they, I, think I think ultimately how it will come down would be you have enough caucus members who basically they, st- they stand up and say, you either go um, or will we, we have we have enough people to uh, uh, institute the uh, Reform Act uh, provision and we're going to have a vote on your leadership. So, so you can either go slightly on your terms and try to save a little bit of dignity, or you can be the first leader in history to be taken out by an official vote uh, in their caucus. But because but we've talked about this, we all know once you lose caucus, you are done. Like you can't, and it's usually a catalyst for like it's something that triggers you know you being pushed out that has nothing to do with with why they're doing it, and that's what that's what I think's gonna that's what I think's gonna happen with with him. People have always wondered why Joe Clark didn't consider 66% at his party's review to be sufficient to stay on and called the leadership convention for 83, which he lost. And I presume, Jenny, that his answer would be that it goes back to what you just said, that he couldn't control caucus with that mandate and he needed, and it was going to eat him slowly. And so he needed to actually win the leadership again, to have that affirmed in a more convincing way to actually beat that beast within caucus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I I know that people ridiculed him for the decision, but I I don't think 66% was sufficient. Like you knew that you were just going to be bled. So, but ultimately, anyways, I think we'll see. Before. I just think yeah. the, I think like I had, I had a couple of uh, people, former colleagues that I used to work with um, call me and just say, I don't understand, like, this isn't a, I don't know what they're thinking. They're so like, you know, so stupid in terms of what Aaron does. It's like, I don't know what they're thinking in terms of like decision-making, like how they, how they sit down. Like, I don't know how you guys did it. We had a morning meeting in opposition and in, in government where you sit down and you hash out all these things and you would never think of saying, okay, well, prime minister or leader, go out to a press conference. Don't worry. Um, I, you'll be able to skate and not have to answer a question on this big issue. Like, I just, I don't understand how that goes. Like, I don't understand if it's just two people making a decision and then they go out. I, I honestly just don't understand. I fundamentally don't get it. Having been part of a lot of discussions that would have went into him going out to the press yesterday. I do it with boxes. Boxes. Boxes are always the answer. No, boxes aren't, <laughs> boxes aren't good for that. But So pretty soon, it'll be two years since we were all pulled into this whirlpool of a pandemic. Two years. Remember the early scares, the toilet paper shortages, the sanitizer shortages, the job losses, the stock market crash and rebound back in early 2020? People had no idea where it was all heading. And you know, some fears were justified. 
Turns out those overseas supply chains we rely on so heavily are pretty fragile. But within North America, the fuel and the minerals and the manufactured goods and grain and the livestock and groceries and all the other things upon which our way of life depends have kept moving. Even the cargo from abroad that does manage to make it to our seaports reaches stores and consumers in timely fashion. And no company is more vital to keeping our domestic supply chains flowing smoothly than our sponsor, CN. If you've got it, a train probably brought it. From day one of the pandemic, CN employees have been reporting for work and keeping our economy moving. During those long months when the U.S.-Canada border was closed to most of us, CN trains kept rolling and rolling on time, heading down through the American heartland to the Gulf of Mexico and back. They still are. Our weather is changing too, to put it mildly. Last winter was harsh, and we've already gone through a few tough months this winter. But you know, CN knows how to deal with deep cold and ice. The C in CN does stand for Canadian. Last summer brought disastrous heat and wildfires. Scientists are predicting more in the year to come. Ultimately, though, CN's trains will run on time. They simply have to. We all have plenty to worry about nowadays. Life is getting more expensive. Everything is getting more complicated. We still don't know where the pandemic is going. But when we do get to the other side, it will be because CN's trains helped get us there. That you can count on. Okay, listen, let's get to our clipping of the day. We have a sound effect for this. Okay, our clipping of the day comes to us courtesy of Susan Delacourt and the Toronto Star. And she wrote a column on the weekend that very kindly picked up on a conversation that I had with Ellie Elmoim on the Hurley Burley and made a nice shout out. So thank you, Susan, for that. Thank you for listening. Let me quote uh, some excerpts from her column. Justin Trudeau made it through an entire news conference on Friday without saying his government had Canadians' backs. This is progress. On Wednesday, the Prime Minister said that line about having Canadians' backs no fewer than five times in a press conference that lasted under an hour. I joked on Twitter that there should be some kind of system at news conferences that would make lights flash every time a politician used a canned phrase to understand that we'd reached the marketing portion of the event. Repetition of catchphrases and slogans, of course, is classic branding behavior. Still, I wonder whether the pandemic is going to force a rewrite of the communications playbook. It isn't just the media doggedly following those news conferences, but members of the public too, captive at home and looking for information, not slogans, from their leaders. Scott, I had this conversation with Ellie on the podcast. The government talks only in talking points that are not made of English and don't really address what's on people's minds. Is that effective? I mean, they're in office for six years, so is it effective and is it working? Or so It, it grates me. I'll, I'll, I'll throw out a couple of thoughts to kick this off. First, um, just to take the... Because strengths are weaknesses, weaknesses are strengths, and, and nothing. all things are gray, not many things are black and white. And so I do think it's important to say that there is an important point to be made about coherence and clarity and consistency in politics and political communication. Um, so we've got your backs by dint of the policies that you take, the actions people witness from you, the things you say, 
the pictures you provide, all those things, you want to be reinforcing that. You want coherence and clarity. And I think at the very highest possible level, this government, this the, the Trudeau enterprise has always really understood that iconography of that stuff, and they've done it well. The challenge is that they overdo it. And often their rhetoric is ahead of the reality of what they deliver. Um, and sometimes it gets flat out cartoonish. I always say to people when I do media training, there's a when you ask people what they think good communication is, they'll invariably go, oh, well, I know what good communication is. That's when you say Coke ads life and you say it a hundred times and people hear it once and you say it a thousand times and you hear it 10 times. And I always say, no, that's wrong. That's marketing. That's that's branding. That's media. That's not media. Like, because we all hate the person who's in an interview whose answer is Coke adds life to everything. You say that person is just a corporate avatar. They're just repeating what they were told. Therefore, they have no inherent point of view, nothing original or spontaneous or organic about them. And therefore, I refuse to defer to them. And I'm not listening to this interview anymore. Media isn't marketing. Media and political communication is the act of persuasion. You must back up your points. You must find ways to be repetitive without repeating yourself and reinforce without being repetitive. And I thought that Susan's piece was downright precognitive because as it had been written and filed, a day later, we see members of the Trudeau cabinet holding up these signs, stand with Ukraine, hashtag stand with Ukraine. And I got to tell you, it fucking boils my ass. It is. And lots of people have made this comment. So this is not original for me. But to me, it's the epitome of, you know, like horseshit hashtag politics, right? It's just like Instagramming your way to a foreign policy. No. And I don't know the full ambit of what exactly the government's doing. Conversations are happening with NATO partners. Conversations are happening with the United States with respect to Ukraine. But I do know that the impression of an unbelievably superficial treatment of an unbelievably serious issue is left with people when you have cabinet ministers standing like goddamn marionettes with this stupid hashtag sign. It's like, unless that is, I, I, first of all, I don't want it at all. But at minimum, it must be reinforced by consistent, clear positions you're taking that demonstrate where you stand. I don't even know where we're at on Ukraine, what well, we're doing on Ukraine. But and Scott, to have this goddamn hashtag. So anyway, I'll shut up now, but the whole thing just drives me mental. It's I, a real vulnerability for the government. I, I agree with you. I thought they all looked, and and, and the, cabinet like ministers, the cabinet ministers especially, like we're just like, I, I, I enjoy They're in the cabinet, Jenny. They don't need to hold up a sign. If you support the, if you stand with Ukraine, go tell the fucking prime minister. Exactly. You're in the cabinet. No, but tell this, people. this is- but this is it. You say, Scott, there's meetings going on with the U.S. and others. I hope there are is. We, I don't know. Are we part of them? Because two weeks ago, there was a meeting with uh, Biden called with the U.K., Australia, New Zealand, I think it was, and someone else. It was almost like we were kicked out of the, the five eyes. And then all of a sudden yesterday, he has a call with the European Union. They haven't had a G7 meeting on this. So so you you love your G20. Fuck, we're even we don't even have the G7 anymore, it seems like Biden has just decided to completely go around. Like I was in the prime minister's office when uh when Russia invaded Ukraine. And we played a very, very uh, forceful role in terms of um, uh, in terms of aid and military support to uh, to Ukraine. We were the ones that pushed. Harper was, Merkel was technically the senior statesperson, but Russia, of course, Germany has a much more dependent relationship because 30% of their, at least now it was, might've been more before, um, other natural gas comes from, from Russia. And I know that like 
we were in emergency cabinet meetings. We were in briefings with um, uh, briefings with uh, Obama all the time, and the rest of the G uh, the G seven leaders. Harper went. Harper four days before um, Russia actually invaded Crimea, two of the airstrips. Har Harper was like walking around with uh, um, with the uh, new prime minister of uh, of Ukraine um, in the Independence Square. So then he could push the G7 leader or the, G, the rest of the G8, the, G, the, G, the seven, um, that they were going to kick Russia out and they were going to move the G8 out of Sochi to um, uh, to Brussels. So and, and, and we've seen Melanie Joligo. She did one photo op where she's she kneeled in front of pictures of, of of people that had had died, which I can tell you, I spoke with some of my Ukrainian friends and that disgusted them. And then pictures of her with Canadian soldiers seemingly doing um, doing nothing and apparently had a pro forma meeting with the deputy prime minister where he asked for um, further military support. And she said, I'm going to have to get back to you, which is a, you know. That's a sweet fuck. No, like, and so I just think there's such vast differences between how this government is handling a major crisis and what, um, uh, what, what I was proud to be part of in 2014. And, and I, I couldn't imagine, could you, I couldn't imagine walking into the prime minister's office and going, we've asked John Baird and Peter McKay to hold up a sign this that says we support about. Ukraine. He would, Harper would have said, have you lost your fucking mind? Like I would have left the room and he would have said, I, I, I think someone needs to check on Jenny because there's something wrong with her. That, that, uh, sorry, David, I just want to underline that. That's exactly where my brain went. Having been in the PMO, I'm more generous than you are. I'm hoping and assuming that there's acres of activity going on behind the scenes, that there's all sorts of discussions going on. And I'm uh, just from my own time in PMO, I know how much the energy and the machinery of government starts getting behind something like this. So I, 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 I'm inclined to be a little more generous. But we see no evidence of it. And as you say, I couldn't help but think to myself, I was a comms director. If I'd walked in to the prime minister's office, we do the morning meeting with the clerk and Tim and me are sitting there at 8.15 in the morning. And I'm like, where are we at on Ukraine? Blah, 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 blah. This meeting, that's going to have these phone calls. We talked to the deputy prime minister in Ukraine. And uh, Scott, what, where are we at on the comms of it? Well, prime minister, we're going to, I've got a, a color printer and um, I'm going to I'm gonna do 28 sheets of paper and I'm going to ask everybody to hold it up uh mutely on uh on instagram i i i, I he would have said like please leave the office drop your badge at the door don't come back i need someone with a brain but but scott so well, it's so performative it's so performative and it's so out of sync with go ahead jay i was just gonna say if i could say one thing this is more policy substantive but it is comms related um if there was more going on behind the scene, would they not sometime in the last five days have said that because they're getting mocked and ridiculed and it's even getting like people are making fun of it. Like someone sent me, I think it was a CNN article. Would you not like if you were actually like doing something more substantive, would you not be pushing that out? Like I would I would be like, OK, let's we embarrass ourselves. Let's say like Biden did. A I mean, they did say Julie was at Ukraine. I mean, I, the other thing I think is that this is ultimately this is Biden's play. So, I mean. You know, but the trip to Ukraine by, by Jolie, that's performative too. Like Jenny's right. There's no substance to our policy that can be discerned at the moment. Well, there was no output, and, right? So that's... Right. So all we see is the performative aspects. And that's when they get in trouble is to when they're, they, 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 they get their comms like this way out of sync with what they're actually doing. And it looks ridiculous. Well, but they you do don't want people to see behind the screen. And, and so, I mean, the imagery of this stuff of communication it's important it does matter and they've demonstrated that it matters 
but it only works to the extent to which if people think, well, that's all there is. And I see behind this, I can see the gears at work and this is just hashtag horseshit. Then, then you failed. All right. It was angering, man. Like, God. Susan, you touched a nerve. Help you me. You touched a nerve here on the God. curse of politics. Um, with a very timely, with a very timely column. Okay. <clears throat> so we t- touched on this earlier. This week, the Conservative Caucus is going to receive the Cummings report. Well, we don't on... know what the Conservative Caucus is. We just know the Cummings really? report is. We he is he has indicated in the past that they're not good that 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 he is not like it is not to be made public um, uh, or what have you. So this is this is why go, go, it's going into the next two days is going to be very interesting because how can you have a report to save your leadership if what is, is there going to be a synopsis like. You know, oh, Bob Smith, who ran the Lethbridge campaigns, thinks Aaron's a great guy and he should keep doing what he's doing. And so um, so we don't know. We actually have no idea. I've had people ask me. I'm like, fucked if I know. I've conducted a review and things are in order. Nothing to see here. <laughs> it's great. I'm going to deliver like, well, with cupcakes. It'll be like Baghdad Alley from or, uh, uh, the uh, communications Bob from the Iraq war. There, the tr- the tanks are not in Baghdad, as you see, like the leopards, like rolling, like behind. How, him. how can you have a report? How can you commission report and use it as a piece of process to manage your way through the tough time, and then say, "I'm not releasing it." Like something's got to come out. It has to be an output. I I agree. With, I agree mental. with you. I agree, I agree with you. I'm just saying what he said. I'm just saying what he said. I'm just saying what they have said. His people have said publicly numerous times. Jesus. Okay, so let's help them. Yeah. <laughs> let's help them. I, I, you know, I, I presume the Cummings report is bullshit anyway. So, fuck the Cummings report. Here's the curse of politics report. The curse of politics report on the conservative campaign. Give I want to Tuesday. divide it up into two categories. Strategy and tactics and execution. So, I'll start. Strategy. The notion to appear unthreatening and to offer incremental rather than revolutionary change was correct and gave the party a chance to win off the top. However, the strategy took carbon pricing off the table for discussion, which was a mistake, and it did not have a second act for the campaign. It needed a major policy to anchor the support gained in the first two weeks. And the strategy was hampered by the fact that the party was not bought in. It was too abrupt a shift from his leadership campaign, and there was not enough advance work to ensure caucus and party would go along. From Hurley, the conservative strategy gets a C. Oh, we're even great. We're, we have to grade it? Jesus, you didn't tell us any of this, David. We're unprepared for our own podcast. Holy moly. <laughs> You're asking me to grade a paper right here live on uh, the internet. <laughs> Well, I actually have to say, I, I don't have a lot of disagreement. Like, I don't have a lot of, I, I, I probably could, I could, like, I don't have a lot of disagreement. I thought the carbon pricing, uh, carbon tax uh, issue was a huge, um, a huge mistake that they had. Um, I, you know, there's still lots of public polling out. I, um, I was reading today, um, polling from a actually pro-environmental uh, group that were complaining about the fact that 
that a carbon tax is still not something that most people uh, support. There, listen, there's a reason the Democrats won't bring it in. There's a reason Obama didn't bring it in. He did studies in the early two, 2010s and the reason it's not part of Biden's climate change plan. So there's there's a reason there that they didn't, didn't do that. And I think it went to your um, uh, tactics. I think the 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 not being uh, to pick up to the not being scary or what have you, I, I, I probably disagree with you on that. But I think what he ended up doing then is he, he hugged himself so close to Trudeau and the liberals or had no position on uh, something and then focused on kind of like what he thought was the warm and cuddly, uh, cuddly issues. Like he thought, you know, putting on a pair of Vans running shoes and, and running every day, like basically forcing almost at gunpoint uh, candidates to like run with him every morning so they could um, tweet it out. I think it was just, it was, it was a mistake because it's not just, I, I actually disagree with you um, uh, in terms of, uh, uh, in terms of uh, not having the caucus or um, uh, the caucus on side. Caucus was actually willing to go along with the election. If you remember, I think it just, he offered nothing to Canadians in, 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 in 905 writings like it's not that it's not that long ago that um uh that cons- like conservatives provincially are still leading in the public polls um with uh, with Doug we we cleaned up the 905 we only there's only one seat in the you know, I talk. I'm not doing the Niagara Region 905, but the, the GTA 905 in the 2011 election um, that we didn't win. So it's it's it, 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 it's it's not just he, they they made a play. They they miscalculated um, what the um, suburban soccer mom or what have you, where their head was at. And they thought it was all personality. And you're never going to be able to be a a candidate like Justin Trudeau um, in any way if you're trying to turn it into like, who's cooler. Okay. Um, So we're grading on strategy right now. Is that right, Dave? That's how you're sort of setting aside. So I would... um, trying to take advantage of the fact that YouTube are talking to try to organize my thoughts here. Um, I would say first I would give them, if I was doing the report, I'd say, look, the idea of introducing the platform in full on the second day of the campaign, uh, good piece of strategy, good piece of strategy because it gave you something to talk about. It anticipated correctly that the liberals would just try to drift on their record. And maybe that would give you more definition, reportable news. And also that it allowed you to present yourself as someone that was, in the mainstream of political and popular opinion on most issues. So it was a good piece of strategy and it um, created a tremendous amount of opportunity, probably grew um, the uh, the pool of voters available to you um, pretty quickly in, in the campaign. So that was good. Uh, second, carbon pricing, like you guys both said, right? Probably missed an opportunity there. Strategically, focused too much on diminishing the risk of fighting on climate change and therefore robbed yourself of the opportunity to fight on pricing, make that a kitchen table issue and differentiate yourself. Um, so you probably were too risk averse there and it, and, and, and you, you abandoned an opportunity to have differentiation. The third and perhaps most importantly and why you end up getting a shitty grade from me is that you failed to reconcile yourself to the most uh, prevalent issue on the minds of people. Vaccines, where you stand on them, not wishy-washy, not trying to have it both ways. This is an issue where people, they've had to live with it for a long time. It's the number one issue on people's minds. It's what moves them around day by day. 
Absolute clarity from the liberals. Would you agree or disagree? No clarity at all from the conservatives. Look like you're trying to have it both ways. Look like you've got a political problem that you're trying to balance in public, which is always a bad look for a leader. And the lack of clarity and coherence on that issue ended up becoming an anchor that sank you in the last half of the campaign. And not anticipating that and not having the courage to confront that and hoping that somehow the campaign would rob you of the need to address it was poor strategic planning. And therefore, I'm giving you a D. Let's see if the Cummings report is that tough. All right. Um, Tactics and execution. Can you go first, David, so I know exactly what you're talking about? (laughs) Right. Walking into the fight over gun control was itself a fatal mistake in platform development. The studio was an interesting innovation, but they should have realized when everybody was tired of it and it had become sterile. There were relatively few candidate problems. The advertising went over the top and lost credibility. It appealed to people who already hated Trudeau as much as the O'Toole campaign did and not the people they needed to reach. On balance, I give tactics and execution a C-. minus. Yeah, I would say actually I agree with you. There was very few candidate, uh, uh, very few candidate eruptions. Um, we've 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 still that's one thing that is held over from the Harper years. We, we still are a pretty disciplined organization in terms of uh, uh, in terms of on the ground campaigns. I agree with you regarding the studio. I think that um, I think. It was an interesting tactic. I don't blame them for wanting to have that ready, considering we were, we're still in the cycle of opening up, closing down, opening up, closing down. But I do think they overused it, and I'm not sure they used it effectively. Like, I, I am not a huge fan of telephone town halls uh, in terms of um, uh, in terms of a, uh, a, a in terms of a tactic. I think, don't get me wrong, I've used them, and there are times you can use them. Um, but it, they, it has to be very, it, it has to be, I think, a unique issue or what have you. Like, I, I remember in the 2011, campaign, you know, basically having people in the war room call in to like write questions because we didn't have enough people that were willing to put up their hands when we were doing kind of a, a last swing in, in, uh, uh, at the, in the lead up to the end. And so um, I think that uh, it was a good tactic to have. It was a good thing to have. They just overused it, to your point. Um, I think also from... Um, uh, just from an on the ground point of view, I think our data it, data was pretty stale um, going into the election. I think if I had been them, I would have spent more money in terms of trying to clean that up. They they didn't have a lot of time, but they did have a year. And uh, so if I had been them, um, I would have I would have cleaned it up and I would have centralized it a bit more. I, I don't know how you guys ran things, but we centralized working with local campaigns. Very like it's we had a very big unit who's, who had very different jobs in terms of uh, working with, uh, with with local EDAs. Like so, so I, I would have probably done that. I also think and. I'm not sure this was a campaign decision, but you have to think that it is because uh, Waleed was the campaign chair. I think that it did Aaron a lot of harm. And I think it was very um, probably demoralizing in the last when the last five or six hours he came out publicly and said that um, we didn't think we had a chance of of winning. And and there is a six hours before the polls close is like that's when you're like that is when you're you're scraping to pull out every uh, um, every vote. So I think that was a tactical error as well. Man, in an election tough. in which you're only down by one or two percent, it's an interesting tactic. Well, and at that, they ended up winning. It's kind of, but it's kind of like the Leger poll out. I saw someone tweet today and say the Harper, or, or uh, the Conservatives are within striking distance. Well, we're we're four, we're three points behind what we got in the last election. Trudeau's up once. Like the horse race numbers just seem so useless. Like I, I don't even know like why we get so hung up on them because they've just been so wrong in the last two elections. 
Well, not only well, that, the but national the horse numbers race. have become even less. National yeah. numbers have I mean. become even less useful. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's the, the, those are the national numbers. numbers. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they're not telling you a story of advantage. They're telling you a story of dismalness across the spectrum. I mean, it's still it's an ongoing concern for me that the Liberal Party can't, you know, uh, can be comforted by just sort of hovering at 32%. That's an unacceptable standard. I'd be spending all my energies trying to increase that number. But um, look, on tactics, I'll try to go quickly. Um, I think I would give them reasonably high marks on a bunch of prep stuff, um, you know, on a bunch of like making sure that there was a system in place, command and control, as you guys have mentioned, to not have a bunch of candidate eruptions. That should have happened with this caucus and all the tensions that exist, and it didn't. So that's an impressive thing. People don't think about it, but, uh, you know, it's harder to harder to pull off than you expect. Um they seem to have a bunch of structures and people in place that seem to work well. The campaign was a functioning unit. Um, but there's two big fails uh, when it came to tactics. One was um, the gun control issue. Um, if you're going to have, if you're going to put that thing in there, then you have to have a point of view about what you're going to do if it blows up in your face. You had to anticipate the possibility it would. And at minimum, you've got to be in a position where you, um, you can't permit that to be a five-day story. I mean, it's just the fundamental rule of elections. You got 36 days. Each one of them is gold. You can't piss five of them away in the middle of the campaign or you're not going to like how the campaign ends. So that, you know, turning a, a, a one or two day problem, you're going to have a problem during the campaign. You must have problems during campaigns. This always happens. And the trick is to make it a one or two day problem, not a five day problem. And that's a giant fail. And that's all based on decisions and inaction and poor decision-making and poor actions. The final thing, I think, and we're kind of saying the same thing, but I would make a different point about the studio. Set the studio aside. I think there was any more fundamental error. The studio became an element of it. And that was mid-campaign, you had momentum. But if you're going to have momentum, you need to demonstrate you have momentum. And I thought that the tour failed to support the arc of the campaign. They should have had O'Toole surrounded by people. At that point, as polls were kicking in and people were seeing that he had a lead, people started contemplating whether or not they could have him. They should have had him in physical settings, surrounded by people who were excited by him, who were pleased to see him. That would have made him inviting. That would have reinforced that he was saleable to the broad public who didn't know him yet. And they didn't do that and sticking on a goddamn telephone in a studio. So it's not so much the studio that's the problem. It's the inability to identify we need to create a momentum storyline here. And I think that was a big tactical error. I think the world could have gone differently for them if they had had him out on the hustings with real people going, holy smokes, this guy's kind of lighting it up. Um, you can create your own luck in those situations. You can create your own sort of momentum and, and magic. We saw Trudeau do it in 2015. Um, we've seen other campaigns do it. And and they just, they almost seem like they were um, indifferent uh, to that to that possibility. And that's something that when you get a bit of a lead, you want the world to see it and think it and feel it and extend it. Yeah, good points, good analysis. That gun control thing, I mean, when things happen in campaigns that look inexplicable, there's generally a reason. So I accept the prospect that there's some reason I haven't contemplated. But to put something provocative in a platform and your fallback strategy is, if somebody notices this, we'll just retract it. That's bonkers. Anyway, okay. Mr. Pinsent, it's time for the hey yous. Ladies and gentlemen, please return to your seats. The hey yous are about to begin. 
All right, I'll go first this week. My Hey You goes out to Premier Scott Moe of Saskatchewan. I smell a scandal. Already your approval rating plummeting due to your COVID handling. Now there's a report from the University of Toronto that says that Saskatchewan has underreported its COVID deaths by seven times. Seven times. So I think that Scott Moe, Mr. Scott Moe, I think you're going to test the theory that the SAS party is unbeatable. Because I think this thing has legs. Okay, you guys got to hear you. Um, I, my hey you is actually going to be something we already touched on. I'm going back to Justin Trudeau and uh, Christian Freeland and the Liberal government. Um, it's evidence. You, it, it, I, I'm hoping maybe Trudeau's tone deaf on this, but hopefully others are not. Um, uh, that that we do actually have an have an issue. People are struggling to pay for things, and there is massive tax increases happening this year. Between, as I said, that we've talked about the green fuel standards, which will hit uh, people. You've got the carbon tax, and it's going to be increased further on uh, April the first, and then you have EI and CPP. Uh, premium in increases, which which could cause like CPP ones are it's a big hit on people's uh, paychecks. It could be fifteen hundred bucks for kind of an average uh, an average family, and so I would call out to them that um, in a budget or it, when they're sitting around the cabinet table is to 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 actually see what Canadians are saying, and they may want to uh, put off or they should scrap uh, doing some of the tax increases that they have uh, that they have uh, announced that they plan on uh, doing this year. Excellent. Scott? Okay. Uh, my Hey You uh, goes out to the federal government and the provinces together, but particularly, I think, for the federal government, because this program and initiative that I'm, ta- I'm about to speak about is, is really anchored in uh, uh, the federal liberal program. And, and it seems like we are about to conclude child care agreements with every single jurisdiction in the in in the country, so we got Nunavut the other day. There's a front page story in the Star that Ontario is on the brink of signing. Let's assume and hope that that's true. And so my hey you is okay, guys. Um, that's great. We've gotten signatures in place. We're going to get framework agreements in every place. Now's the time to demonstrate that that wasn't the ambition. Right, that the ambition is to actually create spaces, and I want to be really, really, really precise about this. The great failing of childcare policies and childcare support policies for the last twenty years has been the failure to incentivize and create spaces—good, safe, regulated spaces where a child can go, be safe, learn, and prosper. That's what we need, and we don't have those spaces. And I hope that this agreement doesn't become just a big fancy framework for income transfer to provinces and to people through the tax system. That's been the problem. We contented ourselves for 20 years to say, you know what, if we just use the tax system to send more money to parents, then that's going to do the trick. And it has not done the trick because it does not create spaces. Spaces, spaces, spaces. Once the signatures are done in Ontario and we've got it all across the country, I want to see spaces created. I want to see reporting on the spaces. I want to hear from governments of the spaces they exist. I want to see them being filled because without spaces, this whole thing is just shit. All right. Hey yous, hot hey yous today, hot hey yous today. Thank you, the two of you, for joining me on my happy good mood day and for being part of my happy good mood day. By the way, you know, we, we talked about music at the beginning. Is this not one a super tramp? One of the 
underrated bands of the 70s, for sure. Absolutely. Nobody talks about them anymore. They got four albums in the 70s, Crime of the Century, Crisis, What Crisis, Even in the Quietest Moments, and Breakfast in America, that are among the best albums of that era. Superb. Um, and I hope that Roger Hodgson gets as much love as Meatloaf when he kicks off. Uh, it, it boggles <laughs> my mind that you could like Supertramp so emphatically and in the same breath dismiss Meatloaf. There's a little bit of mixed DNA no. there. Oh, no, man. there isn't. Loud theatrical no, musicality, isn't. lots of different stuff. Come on. All right, guys. Let's thank our presenting sponsor, TELUS, and our sponsor, CN Rail. Let's thank our Hurley Burleyites for listening, our cursed, our accursed for listening to our show today. More comments, more comments on Apple Podcasts. I keep checking it. I don't, I want more. I want the love. <laughs> there is no love anymore. We're dead on Apple Podcasts. Nobody wants to go there and rate and review us anymore. Come on. Um, no, I'm it's begging over. I've been begging. I've been begging, begging and people won't do it. Throw us a line. Um, <laughs> show us some love we're dying out here all right folks have a great week jenny don't get too much sun we'll see you all next tuesday take care <laughs>